We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel, your host for the 60th 6-0 episode on your Rock Art Podcast. We have a fabulous guest today. His name is Joe Williams. He is the developer of a nonprofit philanthropic initiative. He is interested in preserving, protecting, conserving, and doing public outreach for rock art. Well, welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. Believe it or not, this is our 60th 6-0 episode. And we have an interesting one for you today. We have Joe Williams, who is a Native American himself. And he is going to uh, discuss his own background about being and living as a Native American and also developing some uh, interesting strategies, specifically um, uh, corporate strategies and other things along these lines, to help protect and uh, do also public outreach and conserve what I call sacred sites. Now, we're talking about sacred sites. We're talking about heritage sites. And specifically, the sites that uh, Joe is going to be talking about have uh, absolutely nothing to do with burials or um, human remains or grave goods or anything along those lines. What we're talking about is in the main uh, things that would be called either rock drawings or rock painting sites or sites that have some sort of uh, heritage significance. Joe, are you there with me? Absolutely, Alan. Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm honored and, and blessed to have you on. We have had a smattering of Native people, but in, in the big picture, I think we could have it be much more important. I know that when we, when we kick off our, our three different segments for our hour-long journey, we like to open it up and ask you that um, multi-million dollar question. Joe, how did you ever get involved in um, sort of a passion for Native American things and dealing with... Uh, such controversial issues of trying to protect and conserve uh, heritage sites. 
again, thank you. I like to first want to say that, you know, when it comes to preservation of these sites, I, I believe that many of them, many, vast majority of them are endangered, in fact, endangered. And I learned about this as a native of the area of which I was born, the Antelope Valley. And having been raised through the 60s with the idea of space launch in 69, I was seven years old. I was born in 63. And science, now quantum mechanics, and what I would consider planetary orbital dynamics on a mechanical basis, I believe can be related. If I can find that link from an archaeoastronomy perspective. Are you, are, do you have an extensive background in uh, astronomy and engineering? Is that something that's a specialty of yours? Uh, first off, as far as, as far as the Native American aspects and heritage is concerned, that was born into me. My grandmother taught me and my grandfather, for the most part, where I came from along Cherokee lines, going all the way back to the trail, the actual Cherokee removal. And so after researching my genealogy at my age now going on 60, I, I found a sincere interest in cultural science now as a result of my own bloodlines, even though the quantum isn't that great. So when you say cultural science, help me, help me understand. Well, when it comes to the Kawaiasu, with this partic- these particular sites that are painted, and I see them as endangered, before we jump in and talk about the Kawaiisu, I guess we need to hear more about you and your background. And then also we can talk about the Kawaiisu, but I guess we're going to have to talk about the geography of where you're talking about. Because, you know, at in, in this rock art podcast, and we can talk to, to, to people all over the world. The southernmost tip of the Sierra Nevadas, down at the south. In, in, in California. Yes. In California. Right, right. And so, you know, the, the beginning okay. of the trail, so to speak, if you were to call it the high, uh, the Sierra, high Sierra trail on the Sierra Nevada, that it pretty much begins about where this these areas are. Uh, Horse Thief Canyon, I think, for one, is, is the trailhead for that particular trail leading over from the San Gabriel Mountains, which is the other side of the Antelope Valley from which I was born. So your interest is in an area that you've trafficked and, and know well, which includes, as you said, Antelope Valley and the far southern Sierras, correct? Uh, yes, correct. And that would be actually the far north portion of the Antelope Valley which would be the south I see. tip of the Tehachapi. Okay. Of the Tehachapi Mountains. So the Antelope Valley, for those who are, you know, due to, due to this geography of California, is, I believe, part of the western Mojave Desert, is it not? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, the most Mojave greens I've, I've ever witnessed, actually, pit vipers by 20 to 30 in a pit. You know, where one wrong step in some of the areas out in this desert could be deadly, can definitely be deadly. So it's very treacherous and, how should I say, uh, dangerous terrain out here on the western Mojave side of the desert. So in the, in the Antelope Valley, who are the native people that live there? Uh, in that indigenous area, specifically in Antelope. Well, the Chumash, for one, uh, Paiute. Okay. 
in the Antelope Valley Paiute, for the most for the most part, the Indian Museum of the Antelope Valley Antelope Valley Indian Museum, uh, you know, it houses a lot of the Paiute work. So it explains a lot about. In fact, we've had a a, a few presentations there as a corporation, Seven Fires Corporation, and we've been able to allow ourselves to understand more so about baskets and basket weaving. So the intricacies of basket weaving and how it worked out here in the Alabama Valley, the lake that it was, which is now dried up, the natives had to go around this lake and it was quite a journey. So the meeting places is where it was important. And these meeting places, for the most part, they were marked and painted as trading areas for the natives. So, so what you're, I think you're saying is that is that many of the places in Antelope Valley, for a variety of reasons, are sites for what we call in the vernacular the anthropology, archaeology, pictograph, or painting sites, native painting sites that adorn certain types of rock. Am I am I correct? Yeah, well, they are, they're, for the most part, uh, meeting places for uh, between the natives to exchange and trade. These places, though, at the same time, they were villages that were lived in for long periods of time. So as far as the time that uh, a particular tribal have lived at a particular site. It could have been centuries, if not a millennia, that a tribe could have lived at a particular village site before or after it became a trading area for many tribes to meet, all the way from the coast to uh, the Mojave, Paiute, Kauaisu, uh, Shoshone, Chumash, Kitimak, uh, many, many tribes actually would meet and they would exchange sea goods, shells, in exchange for acorns. And then out in the Paiute area, it would be different items such as pinion, uh, out in the pinion hills, pinion nuts in exchange for the acorn. And they travel around this lake, the Antelope Valley was a lake. And that was how things were done back then. What was the name of the lake uh, given? It, it wasn't Lake Los Angeles or anything like that, was it? <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. Well, but it's, it's very near Lake L.A., actually, uh, uh, many of the Paiute okay. sites. And, and the Indian Museum, in fact, is in Lake L.A., so, uh, you okay, know, for anyone okay. to know. And the museum is an excellent museum, excellent museum. Well, I know the Antelope Valley Museum. I've only been there a couple of times, but it's quite a treasure. It's an architectural treasure. It's kind of off the beaten path, but it has an incredibly extensive collection of artifacts and other cultural materials and it's really quite remarkable so that's uh, definitely something that we'd recommend for our listeners to uh, explore and and see further but in terms of your interest it sounds like antelope valley was one and as we wind our way i guess further towards the west we bump up against the isn't the uh, transverse ranges in there the tehachapi mountains etc Correct, and that's when it extended down the trails were painted and the marks were left all the way down into Baja, in fact. In fact, uh, there's been tales, or I should say legends, of the trail leading all the way to Mexico City. Now, you know, the origins of these trails, you know, they extend for thousands of miles, these trading trails, if you will. Mm -hmm. 
so many uh, coming in and out of Baja, California on up and, and for the most part ending here in the Tehachapi Mountains that, that I've been able to see as far as paintings are concerned. So the Tehachapi's as far are, north. Yeah, Tehachapi's are kind of a a different set of landforms. Most of the landforms, I guess, in California go north-south, and those are the mountain ranges like the Sierra Nevadas and many others. But the Tehachapi's are one of those odd east-west landforms. They call them the transverse ranges, and that kind of stops they're at the end of the Sierra Nevadas. Now, I understand that there's um, certain areas where you find mainly rock drawings and other areas where you find rock paintings. Your experiences on that? Yeah, I'd say the polychromes are really important when you take into consideration really, for example, how Professor Robinson has dated these as being over 2,000 years old. And imagine painting paint, original paint being over 2,000. Who is Professor Robinson? Professor Robinson is a PhD at Valley College. Professor Roger Robinson, he researched some of these sites, in fact, most of them, for over half a century since the 60s. He brought students from the archaeology classes at Ella Valley College out to these sites to study them. So these sites are somewhat popular to the students of archaeology in that they've been presented by Professor Roger Robinson. And is he mainly interested in the Antelope Valley area uh, vis-a-vis the paintings? He, he, because he taught in the area of the Antelope Valley at the college there, it was mainly in within the vicinity here all the way out to, let's say, uh, Ridgecrest, uh, out to Bora, maybe even all the way up towards Bishop, he would do, he would do research. So your interest is both in the rock drawings and the paintings, am I correct? Yes, you know, there's a lot uh, in these paintings, especially when you take a different take on it, let's say from an IR infrared level, and you can see paintings underneath paintings. And for example, one of these paintings is a representation of what could be interpreted as an alien with a helmet. And the thing is, Mm -hmm. is that when you research, you know, the particular tribe of the area, you find a thousand years ago that the war had dresses in their rituals. And it was a representation actually of that very headdress. And even though that this is a painting that's underneath, Underneath the other paintings, and it's really a very interesting topic to explore, definitely interesting. And it's it's definitely something I believe that all who understand the meaning, true meaning of these paintings, uh, would understand how to respect them. And, and that's mainly how our public outreach is, is wanting to design ourselves in, as a public outreach information resource so that when and if you, I, if you're all the way up into Bishop or Lone Pine or anywhere where you might find uh, one of these very beautiful areas, for the most part, they were usually in very beautiful areas where these paintings or pictographs were done and how to respect them for what they are, you know, rather than to not recognize what they are. Joe, I think that's a good place to to try to stop for the first segment. And then I think in the the second segment, 
I think we should talk a bit about, as you were calling it, public outreach and the kinds of maybe uh, sites that we're talking about here, and also some of the dangers that we've we've experienced in terms of some of the issues of vandalism and and theft and and damage that could take place to perhaps impact these kinds of just uh, you know incredible treasures and resources. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code ROCKART. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on price and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Welcome back, team. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And we're blessed and honored to have uh, Joe Williams, Native American. He's also uh, a prominent individual in terms of trying to conserve, protect, and uh, do a bit of public outreach and education for the uh, rock art resources within the Western Mojave Desert of the great state of California. Joe, are you with us? Absolutely, Alan. Thank you. Well, I guess in that first segment, we did a bit of a journey about your personal background and some of your passions and some of the interests that you have. I guess uh, at this point, we should talk maybe more specifically about the... Um, the challenges that we face in trying to preserve, conserve, and do, I guess you'd call it outreach or, or public outreach, in trying to uh, share the heritage values and, and importance and significance of this uh, treasure of uh, rock art paintings and drawings that exists throughout, the, throughout California. Am I at all correct, Joe? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I do you know, feel I need to try to give credit where credit's deserved, and that's to Tomo Kani State Historical Park and the Tachapis off Sand Canyon Road. Tomo Kani State Historical Park together with the Tachapi Museum, because in that museum is a special section for the Native American portion, Kawaiisu, if you will, Kawaiisu tribe of the Tehachapis in that area. So I just wanted to go ahead and say that first, that anyone who really would be interested in what these uh, rock art sites actually stand for, a very good beginning is with Tomokani State Park, Antelope Valley Indian Museum, and Tehachapi Museum. Well, I guess if it, this is a... Um a blind or selfless plug, but of course I've been 
visiting and connecting with the Tatchby Museum and the native Kauai people for several years, <laughs> probably on the order of maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And uh, we were honored to um, be part of the development of the Kauai wing of the Tehachapis. And uh, we won the governor's award, including the Kauai themselves, with our book on the handbook of the Kauai which was the basis for the Tehachapi Museum in terms of their uh, public interpretation of the um, Kauai people. And it was um, Harold Williams and Janice Williams and a whole bevy and array of different native people that worked together to create this multimodal public outreach, as you're well aware. Absolutely. And a very excellent read at that. Thank you very much, Doctor, for that. Together with Harold Williams and, and how, in fact, we met through Janice Williams, you and I. We did. And we did. Janice, she was the, yeah, she, she was the traditional basket weaver for the Kauai Sioux. And I remember in the museum attending some of the presentations that she would have on basket weaving. And they were very impressive to be able to watch and understand and learn about how uh, long, especially, that these baskets take to weave. So Janice... I, I believe was a was a very strong point, especially on a cultural when it comes to language. The language is important. So, you know, the arts. I believe when it comes to language, when it comes to basketball, all, all, all the arts, you know, should be preserved, and, and that's a very important thing. I, I believe. And cer- certainly, the, there has been a you know a, a great deal of a challenge and and problems and other elements with preserving and connecting, allowing Native people to connect with their Indigenous heritage and be able to acquire the particular elements of the landscape that they need to produce basketry in the way that they had in the past, which is uh, very, very difficult to this day. And with that, since we have the basketry side, we can talk about the aesthetics of the rock art side as well. And I know you were alluding to Tomokani, and of course, Tomokani is a state historic park. It was in part developed by Native people, by Andy Green himself, trying to preserve that area. And it's it has the creation site or origin site for the Kauai Sioux. It's got a fabulous painting site. It's got some of the rock drawing sites as well. And all that is arrayed in this beautiful, you know, sand canyon bowl area that's protected thanks to uh, the work of Native people and some of the other uh, politicians and prominent individuals that helped to reserve that land and and develop it into a remarkable park. So hats off to them all. Many of those people have now passed on. Absolutely. But uh, the heritage remains, as you're you're well aware. And those challenges, I'd say, for the most part, when it comes to that historical state park, uh, you don't have to worry so much about trespassers. The private properties that most of these sites are on are are really regarded as no trespassing. It's all private property. But yet, when it comes to the challenges of trying to preserve these areas, unfortunately, they're very popular for the off-road enthusiasts 
the hikers are very conservative on the level of nature, but unfortunately when it comes to off-road, there isn't much we can do really in regards to trying to control it when one of the most popular areas, most of them, are near these sites. And the land erosion is tremendous, especially at one particular site. The land erosion caused by all the motorbike riding up a hill that scarred it permanently for who knows centuries before it ever regrows. And all that sand and erosion is eroded down and fueled up the canyons. And now, even at one of the sites, uh, you know, it's filling up with sand. It's getting buried with sand. Access to the sites, I can say, at least for the most part, are more difficult, the terrain. So that's the only good part about the land erosion. So I guess we've had some, some problems, certainly in eastern California, regarding rock art vandalism. We had uh, some someone in the Owens Valley in an area that is relatively unprotected take a um, electric saw and cut up those cliffs and and you know pull them off the sides of the cliffs. So that was one one thing that happened. We've had others that have picked up the uh, rocks themselves and carted them away. So we know about those. And of course, you've got those that are are vandalized. Yeah, that I mean, those that are that are actually used for target practice or for other sorts of things like that, where they're vandalized or if they're graffitied or or if or sometimes even if they're painted over. Uh, when it comes right down to what we've done as as a corporation and how we've gotten our foothold on this issue is by purchasing ourselves as a corporation on a nonprofit level a piece of property very near the site so that we can relay 4K cameras and these 4K cameras that are relayed from one peak to another are only but a few hundred yards away. And so being able to have an eye recording some form of record of what's going on around these sites, I believe is a is an important step, uh, you know, in trying to preserve these areas from vandalism. So that's one of the steps that we're looking to take here, very near in the very near future. Actually, I haven't heard that that particular system is used very often at any rock art sites that I'm aware of, even those that are, you know, uh, some of the most prominent and most important, such as like Painted Cave and the Chumash area or uh, or elsewhere where you think you you know really should have had some sort of electronic monitoring what is it that you're preserving what is you don't have to give us details but i but that there's a there's a remarkable painted site that's actually owned by a uh, energy company correct Actually, Cal Portland Cement is a cement okay. company, and uh, they own, in fact, Cal Portland. Cal Portland owns vast amounts of land across California and Oregon. That's why they're called Cal Portland. Okay. Now, these commercial concrete, they know better than to take the choice of bedrock, so to speak, or whatnot, where these paintings are. They respect them at least, but yet there's the regard towards how do we preserve it. So our corporation mm -hmm. operates on a non-profit level to try to be that in-between for the corporation that's needing stewardship of the site, but yet they can't afford to take the expense of it anymore. 
So we step in with our systems to try to monitor it and, and keep the place safe. Now, for example, one particular canyon, I particularly know for a fact there's endangered species of nature. In fact, at a, in a microenvironment back in one of these canyons. And it is not uncommon in the valley area here where I was born, Antelope Valley, for example, Little Rock Dam, where the whole back portion of the canyon is shut down over an endangered species such as a frog, a tree frog, I believe. I believe the same to be true in many of these areas, canyons, especially where water runs, and that maybe as a medium to try to dissuade the typical visitor out is to designate some of these areas for the purpose of endangered species so that uh, no one individual actually takes the responsibility for keeping people away from very delicate endangered areas. So, so obviously you have a treasured ecosystem there. Absolutely. Uh, artesian wells. There's, uh, you know, many, many sources for uh, life that hasn't really expanded from beyond that area. So it's still preserved okay. in these, what, what would be considered micro environments, literally surrounded by, by okay. a wall of mountain rock. You know, you know, there's many of these areas throughout Tatsby. Are we able to identify the site by name or is what should be? maintain that confidentiality? Well, as far as Tom O'Connor is concerned, until we are able to try to form some kind of uh, actual, how should I say, resonance of preservation in regards to like the camera systems, which I've only now formulated right. on, how, on how they'd be, you know, a self-contained solar powered, so to speak. Right. And it's close enough within range for a 4K camera to be able to post up signs and tell, let people know this, this area is being recorded, you know. So it helps to keep people maybe away from the areas that they shouldn't be until we get to the point of being able to designate that particular species of frog. As people begin to become aware that people care about these places and they want to educate and keep keep people informed and uh, let them understand the context and value and significance and interpretive potential of these sites, that this is a, um, a, a possibility and an opportunity to do that. For example, I believe, you know, if not uh, fish for, for, for that matter, that could be used as a way or an expression of being able to limit who goes in and out of these very important areas. Well, I think that's it for this second segment. And I think in the final segment, we'll try to do a, a round robin and get to the heart and soul of talking about the significance, value, and um, importance of rock art. Can you imagine? See you in the flip-flop, gang. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back, podcast fans. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with your Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast platform. This is the 60th episode, 6-0. Can you imagine? 
And we have, as our honored guest, Joe Williams, who's talking about rock art and also about Native heritage resources and uh, in what ways we can conserve them, protect them, and uh, cherish those remarkable treasures of uh, the past. So, Joe, I think one of the questions I think our listeners might have is, as we begin to understand more and more about the cosmos, the universe, and both things we call animate and inanimate objects, we, we begin to understand that some of the things that we thought were, um, as we call them, inanimate, have agency, have authority, seem to be alive with, um, there's a lot of different words for it, but in some uh, areas it's called puha or buha. It's power, it's energy, it's vitality. It's this um, ethereal thread that uh, passes throughout the universe uh, and our bodies and, and all of things in the world. How am I doing, Doc? Excellent. In fact, I couldn't say it better. In my opinion, it's a matter of being able to actually see if you're looking from a native perspective at these paintings, rock, art, pictographs, uh, formations, uh, these very important sacred areas from a native's perspective for exactly what they are and why they were painted. If it was a uh, hunting ritual. They're alive. Or they're alive with power. There's The rocks are alive. Yeah. Exactly. And there's actually, you can see almost a, a, a connection on a uh, on an astronomical level. So when you look at archaeoastronomy, you can actually start to see the evidence. And for example, at one site where the formation of the grind holes or mortar holes that were used are actually in the pattern of the star system Cirrus, the Milky Way. So when you take into consideration that the ancient cultures of our time have actually had a good understanding, a very concrete foundation on knowing about planetary conjunctions or alignments or or knowing the position of where particular positions would be with, for with the moon, for example, the harvest time and season. This is all they. This is all they had. Right. This is all they had to depend on for time. And so, there's these the evidence, the evidence of it. So what what we've done, and what has been done, by scientists and astronomers, is they have found that. A number of these painting sites and petroglyph sites are um, are, are indigenous observatories of, of, of in, a, in, in a part that uh, help them to predict the winter solstice sunrise or sunset and the summer solstice, or they're associated with um, the viewing of uh, Venus. And the reason Venus is so important is, as you're well aware, it's the morning star and in the, the evening star. And it's the um, first star you see in the morning and last star you see at night. I think I've said that right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Absolutely. And anyway, those have metaphorical implications because as if we view the universe and look for cycles and talk about life and death and concepts of uh, renewal and resurrection and regeneration and it's the cycle of life, these are all 
uh, elements of our un- of our universe are depicted in the natural cycles of the world. <laughs> Absolutely, I would say in indigenous peoples of the area were able to express this and the formation of their art that they were able to express. Even if it was using grinding holes in certain patterns to be able to represent, for example, star system. Yeah, or they're able to grind holes in particular shallow or deep caves or rock shelters or have the orientations so that they could then see on the horizon or have streams of of uh, the sun light up certain parts of the paintings or have the perceptions of that cosmological narrative depicted on the stones and uh, enhanced by the natural movements of the sun. Exactly, exactly. You've made that point uh, right there is what, in actuality, I'm actually on the lookout for when it comes to, on a technological side, how it was actually used in order to determine these times of season. For example, the harvest when a particular light shined on a particular part of a painting. You know, it's a very, very important aspect of the way of life for the Native Americans who lived in these areas. So moving forward with with our, our, our research, our outreach, our protection and conservation of rock art, both in California and around the world, certainly because of these treasures, what would you tell the general public that would be a, a bit of an insight or a piece of wisdom that might help them to understand from your perspective why these places are so important? I would have to try to explain it from a unique perspective, if you will, doctor. Please. I can can see how it is here in Southern California, living on the San Andreas Fault with the constant of earthquakes. When you start to recognize, hey, it's a full moon out again, and you remember an earthquake before when it was Mm -hmm, full moon, mm -hmm. you know, or for example, I'm, 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 I'm only saying when you're an actual native of the area that's so active, the way it is environmentally here in Southern California. And you see these paintings and how they, and these areas and rock formations and the way they were used. You start to understand the connection on a... A spiritual level. Archaeological... Religious level, a cosmological level, sort of almost an an intuitive level. And, And I know that many of us in this time of our lives are searching for some sort of a, a more natural or ethereal level to interact with our environment and to get back to that, you know, land relationship, the land, the environment, and sort of touch and sense the, uh, the world as it was. How's that? I agree completely, completely. For example, this one particular site that I enjoy to visit, like Professor Robinson, Roger Robinson did, I learned that really what this place has taught me is more about myself than my parents could ever teach me or any school or college could ever teach me. I've learned more about myself through learning about this site, for example, that's taught me 
more about me to learn more about the site. Now, that to me is like an interrelationship that you would have with being able to form a bond with the site that you can start to understand on a, on, on a native level, not to mention on a technical level. Well, Joe, it's been a real honor and a blessing to have you on the show today. And I think, uh, I think our listeners will get a, a nice dose of sort of a, a better understanding, a deeper understanding from the native viewpoint of what rock art is all about. I, I would hope so. Thank you. Thank you, gang. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.